Hey everyone, my name is Francisco, this is Latin Entertainment, and welcome to Conversamos. Today's episode is on feminism, racism, and classism, how they've developed, how they intersect, and how we move forward to a more liberating society. And to host this episode is not only than Kim. We hope you enjoy this episode of Conversamos. Yeah, yo, is it that wrong? I'm making a song, I'm taking it back for the platform that I formed. He's just helping me transform. I run the reservoir, the predator. All right, so the first question we have for tonight is How have you understood fe- feminism before the 21st century? I can start. Um, I would say that I really don't know a whole lot about feminism before the 21st century, being only 30 years old myself. Um, I guess you could say, yeah, a lot, a lot happened in, in the way of feminism in the 20th century. Um, you know, women's suffrage. But yeah, I guess I don't really have a lot to say. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with, I know that white women got a lot out of it. And I don't think that women of color got quite as much out of that deal. And we're still working toward it. Um, I read a report recently about Latina women make 70 cents. Um, for every full dollar that white women make. And that's before we even take into consideration the wage gap between men and women. So um, I'd say gains were made, but not nearly enough. I think that a lot of the times the way that feminism um, before the 21st century is taught is that it's specific to white women in the United States or women in in Europe, right? We don't hear these narratives about the hard work that Latinas um, were engaged in. So you don't hear that that Chicanas and Boricuas were there at the anarchist meetings, hosting them and um, storming the the steps of Congress, right, in the 1950s. And you don't hear about um, Puerto Rican women in uh, being the champions of major labor marches in New York City when buildings were on fire because, and people were dying because they were being locked into rooms rather than being given um, escape hatches, right? Um, that it was Puerto Rican women who were the union labor organizers who were leading those. And it's intentional that we're not being included, um, that the labor that Latinas in the United States do in the 20th century and before that as feminists isn't being included in the narratives, even though those narratives don't exist without those women's action and activity. So I think that um, there's two things going on, right? There's this master narrative about feminism that's espoused, especially within white feminist movements. And then there's everything else and all of these women coming together in their collectives and in their um, their activism that is present, right? There's, there's proof that it exists, but it's a matter of finding where it's been intentionally hidden um, and, and coming to, to bring that out to light. Yeah, so I um, I uh, arrive at feminism. I want to say in two ways. Uh, the first way was very personal to me. I'm from a large family from Mexico, where women don't have a lot of power, especially in my mother's generation. Um, and so I would say that the freedom of my generation as females was basically built in the backs of people like my mother, who never worked. Uh, and when I say work, I'm, I'm going to define work not as salaried work for the moment, because let's not let's be clear that run, having kids and feeding them and cooking and cleaning with uh, a lot of resources is a lot more work than everybody thinks. It's just that in the capitalist world, we define labor or work as salaried. Right, and so in order to deconstruct the hegemonic narrative that uh, Roberta was just talking about, we really need to begin to define when we say work, we usually mean paid work. And because in countries like Mexico, men were considered, and in the US, are considered heads of the household, then women, the category of women, are always hidden. Their work, their labor is always hidden. Right, uh, and so um, 
so I, I, uh, I started becoming interested in understanding why somebody like my mom, who had 12 children and was very powerful, powerful within the household, could not have power outside, right? So that was a personal way. Uh, and then um, in studying feminism as a uh, strand of academia, right? You basically find that we have what is called hegemonic hem feminism, which is uh, the narratives that are controlled by primarily white women of European, European descent because they can read and write, right? And so if we apply the inequality that exists in the academic field, you will find that not many Latinas in the US or African-Americans were able to get educated and therefore they were invisibilized. Right, because their voices were, it's not that they didn't have voices, it's that their voices were being marginalized because they didn't have access to education. So we already have the strand of class, right? And because they were not white, and when, when the conquest of Latin America, I want to say Latin America, brings in slavery, the labor, the labor power of people of color it's taken away from them and expropriated to white people. And so that prevents them. So we have race coming in, right? Um, and, and so that all of those prevent them from, from having their voices heard. And so having access to good education for Latinos and African-Americans is very important. And uh, so that, that, that would be like, like your, your uh, typical, Typical feminism, right now, we're in a different moment. Uh, Latina voices are being not completely heard, but they're not completely silenced, right? Uh, and in academia or outside. I like had, like I could relate to like a part of every, a part of every, what of everybody said, like um, when Roberta said that, you know, we're intentionally being forgotten as Latinas the first thing that popped in my head immediately was the first Latina that I knew of that like to me had so much power was Frida Kahlo. And I remember being a junior in high school and learning about her and being like, wow, like, why don't we talk about her more? You know, um, Frida Kahlo, for those of you who don't know, or most of you probably do, um, she, you know, went through like horrific accidents and, even her relationship with, um, I think Diego Rivera, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. um, was just horrendous and just the power she had. And you can see it in her paintings and you can see, I saw the point where she stopped being Diego's wife and Diego's anything and just being and becoming herself, becoming who Frida Kahlo is and completely just embracing it. And I loved how she embraced her flaws, her perfections. She embraced everything. And to me, that was just so human because we're not perfect. And just the way she was able to show it off and just be like, here, this is who I am and I'm not afraid was just so powerful to me. So the next question is, um, what does feminism in the 21st century mean to you? I think the feminism that we're looking at here, and specifically if we're talking about Latino feminism, is a major shift in consciousness about the way we think, not just about gender, but also about the ways that we interact with systems of power, the ways that we are beholden to it, complicit with it, hurt by it, oppressed by it, and the ways that we... Um, create moments of solidarity to work through these pains, right? Um, because we're, we're, none of us are working in a vacuum and there is a lot of trauma that's involved in it. And so we're seeing all that shifting in how we're seeing the world and how we're seeing ourselves um, kind of giving rise or giving birth <laughs> um, to rethinking who we are and what our possibilities are. And I think that it's that idea of being able to create new horizons of potential, um, but also being accountable to one another is a new direction that we're able to go in. Um, 
and we still have a lot left from the 20th century that we still need to take care of but i think that we're we're making some real shifts happen and i think that that's where we're going to be going soon if not immediately in the n next years where we have the vision of where we can go you know again i think this is um really kind of a challenging question just because it encompasses so much all at once um like what this feminism for a hundred years mean to you. Um, and also like, I've just been reading these books lately. One of them is called Hood Feminism. And it looks at like the ways that um, marginalized populations experience feminism. And it's kind of like shifted my entire perspective about so many things. So I guess when I look back at like feminism, like as a movement, I see white women and I just, I, I, I feel like other voices have been silenced, kind of like what Rosario was saying earlier, right? Or have been cast to the side. And um, I just think that with feminism, we have to remember to help and pick up the other, all, all women. It's not just about white women. It's not even just about Latinas. It's about empowering all women. Um, and that's really hard because we all have so many different ideas of what that empowerment looks like. You know, does it look like, oh yeah, I'm gonna not have children and keep my name when I get married and, and be the breadwinner? Does it look like well, I'm gonna have children? Does it look like I'm gonna make my own choices? So I, I think that it's just so hard because there's so many different ideas of what feminism looks like. And, um, I don't know. That's a, that's a really hard question for me to kind of grasp just because it's so broad. I, I don't know if that was helpful. That was good. Yeah. Um, so let's see. I, I'm going to answer this in a very, um, I want to say academic <laughs> because that's my field. But, um, and so I specialize in uh, literature written by women. And I also specialize by Afro-Latino women. Um, and so looking at feminism in Latin America, right, there, there is not a moment where there is a lot of movements. Uh, it's the way that they were here, you know, like marches and that kind of stuff. Not in the 60s, not in the 70s. It doesn't really happen. Um, but there is literature, right? And so one of the writers that I have written about, which is Rosario Castellanos, uh, she writes on a strand that is called uh, indigenista literature. And indigenista literature is a literature that is written by people who are themselves not indigenous, but are acquainted and, uh, and claim to represent indigenous voices. And once again, we're coming, circling back to this uh, issue of representation because indigenous people do not speak Spanish and they do not have access to systems of representation like writing, right? So education keeps coming back. But Rosario Castellanos is a bit different from the feminists on the 70s. She dies in 1975 and she writes uh, this famous novel that in Spanish is called, in, in Mayan, is called Balloon Canan, which in English and in Spanish means the nine guardians or the nine stars. Um, and the biggest, the, the, uh, um, it, it is about indigenous people. And, and the most important character is the Indian nanny. Now, Castellanos reading or the placement of indigenous women within Mexican society is very much in point with everything that we are talking about today. That these are women who have been not just exploited in the sense of their labor, but they're super exploited because this character raises children who are not her own and even breast, breastfeed them. And if you know anything about being a woman and a mother, you know that you cannot breastfeed children unless you yourself have had children because you need the milk, right? And so she's making the argument that the exploitation of the indigenous women goes back to even Matern maternity, right? Because we don't know what happened to the children of the Indian nursemaid. But she does raise white children. Feminism in the 21st century, I'm 23 years old, so I kind of only seen like one side of it. 
and it's kind of like okay i'm latina and i'm brown so it's like i see all these women who have the same parts as me who go through the same things as me but they're not the same color as me but they have more power than me and it's like these women and i'm not gonna say just with white women because it's people women of color as well because i've encountered in my own even in my own you know quote unquote like people like i've had people try to kick me down and it's just very sad because i grew up you know learning i i grew up very fortunate going to a private school and we were taught at a very young age to help anyone and anybody who needs help out you know um it's uh whoever needs it boy girl white brown but i i think that there over the years feminism like most of you girls most of you ladies have said is been really focused on the white women and you know their achievements and what they need to happen and what you know they they want and i think latina women are very powerful and i think they've always been very powerful i think they they have been behind the scenes more often than not and that people don't get to see them and i think that's why people forget about them or don't want to recognize them but it's really a shame because i the you know my grandmother had eight kids and i thought she was a very strong woman because she had eight kids at home no medication no hospital no nothing and to me that is just so powerful because i don't know i've heard the contractions are like 20 times as more painful than cramps so i can't even like i'm i barely get through my period cramps so i can't even imagine going through childbirth and for her to do it without a drop of medication and by herself is just incredible to me because even back then men weren't even allowed to be near or in the same room when women gave birth. So I and you know my grandmother was an amazing woman and she had eight kids, worked from 4 in the morning cooking all day until at night and I just think she was she was my she was my first example of a strong woman and I want to say that her she did a lot of homework like housework and you could tell it wasn't just in the house she worked with the house she worked with the family but she also had my grandfather going to work she also was looking into property working she was also you know my grandfather was doing working and then she was already thinking about what's the next move and where do we go and let's make this a better life for us because this isn't working out so you know i think i've had a lot of great amazing women in my life thank god that have shown me i think what it is to be powerful and to be more powerful in this generation in this century but i definitely think we as latinas need to come together more and share our stories and use our voices be loud um I want to yeah definitely agree with some of the things that Kim said right because um I am also you know younger and uh that whole like having kids thing is definitely not for me um my grandmother also is somebody who definitely has influenced me a lot in my life um she had to leave school after 6th grade in Mexico because her mother died and she ended up being the caretaker of the family at 12 years old um she got married at 18 had her children uh didn't want to have more than her two children but doctors would not allow her to have birth control without her husband's consent and he wouldn't consent and then ended up leaving her anyway for someone else and starting a new family um my grandmother kind of always like instilled this idea like i get to choose what i do with my life education is the way that you know you got you have to like me going to college was absolutely not even like a, a, it wasn't an option it was a requirement um so i think that yeah women men latinas we have always been powerful we've always been strong i think that um the patriarchy uh keeps us down um quite frankly because our culture is very machista um 
But uh, yeah, I, I guess, you know, and ageism is a real thing, Kim. So, I mean, I myself work with, you know, a coworker who is Mexican, who is older, whom I respect very much. But um, I've come to find that she really doesn't like me because she thinks that I'm pushing too much too fast. And so that, that's kind of a thing that you will confront as you move into your career. But, um, you know, just everybody moves at a different pace. And yeah, we just we need to we need to support each other more as Latinas and not necessarily like this group right here. But you know, when we see it outside not happening, we got to step in and say something to push us forward. Um, just to, if I can, just to jump in, Athena and Kim, um, what you're bringing up about your family and your, your grandmothers and your mothers, um, and this kind of goes to Rosario, what you were saying, there was this really brilliant article that came out in, um, I don't know, if anybody reads it, but um, Chicana Latina, the journal for Mulks, there was this really brilliant article that came out, I want to say it was this past fall, and it was looking at the ways that, um, that women especially navigate spaces to be the bearers and the maintainers of culture and tradition, but also as they're doing this, they're teaching and training the young women in their families and the men too, right? <laughs> but um, the women, how to be empowered, how to make culture work for them so that, you know, you're learning about your ancestors, you're learning that you come from people who have strength, who have the ability to endure things, but also it's not that they are just suffering, right? It's that they're also creating. If you can figure out how to feed eight people with nothing, and wake up and make sure that everybody is fed by the end of the day, that is some mental acrobatics right there. Um, and that doesn't come from being, you know, and we can all fill in the blank of the nasty words that are used to describe women, especially women of color and especially Latinas in this country. Um, they're doing that, you know, like they're, they're figuring it out and they're creating at the same time the, the sewing, the um, teaching their children songs so that they can learn memorization skills. I mean, it's in the flesh, right, that they're doing this. And going back to Rosario's point about um, Lugones, right, and Lugones saying that gender is at the center of coloniality, there's a reason that women's bodies are targeted and it's not, it is that, you know, women are, are reproducing one generation to the next, but there's something sacred, um, you know, we talk about sacredness and the female and the ability to reproduce, but there is something about um, knowing how to navigate these things that is intuitive to the roles that women have been playing in their families for generations. And that, I think, is what's so dangerous to powers of uh, structures of power, that women know how to do this. And I'm thinking of, like, um, Gloria Anzaldúa and Sherry Moraga with Theory in the Flesh and Aurora Levens Morales with her work on medicine stories that women are doing this work in these communities um, and that it's in that way that we keep the families alive, that we keep our communities alive and our cultures alive and uh, create that space for change in the future. Yeah, I think family is very powerful. Um, I have to tell you, my mother is 95 years old mm. <laughs> and she does not understand feminism, let's put it that way. Uh, talking about generational differences, you know, and she did not like, uh, um, enjoy doing all the work under, we were very poor. Um, um, and then um, my father was a bracero. I don't know if you guys know what a bracero is, the uh, guest worker, right? Um, and so uh, even though she went through all of those struggles, she does not look sympathetically to <laughs> to the new generation. So, but you have to contextualize people within their generations, right? She was ninety five. She's ninety five, so she was born in like nineteen twenties. I can imagine all that she has seen in her life, right? And so, when I think about my mother in that way, despite the uh, generation gap, because I'm the youngest. I, I have to think of her, of her, of her life, right? The woman didn't really have what I have, right? And it was thanks to her and people like her that I have what I have. All right. 
So the next question, which I think we all kind of like picked that a little bit, but I think we can go into depth, is how does race affect feminism and how does class affect feminism? One thing that comes to mind for me is that the, the difference in the communities in the Latino community as a whole in the United States asks us that we think about colorism, right? Even within our own communities. I'm a light-skinned Latina. I walk out into the world, people don't automatically peg me um, the, way, the way that I would be if I looked darker, right? Like that's just a reality. If I looked more Afro-Boricua, I would definitely get pegged differently. And so I have <clears throat> a great deal of privilege that comes with that and that affects my ability to talk about these things, let's say in a public setting, um, and be able to be more effective, right? Not because what I'm saying is more accurate or real, but that people within this colonial structure connect um, authority with my skin color. And that's something that within the Latino communities in the United States that we're talking about, but I think that that's a richer conversation than um, has necessarily been happening to this point and that it's something that reverberates throughout um, our communities going back to Latin America and the ways that we talk about or don't talk about racism among Latinos or Latin Americans in Latin America um, and in terms of class race is automatically there um, they're, they're so interconnected that you can't disconnect them but in the United States you know <laughs> When I moved north of the Mason-Dixon, I started being called a minority. And I was, it's like, okay, because I lived in the South for a while, I forgot what it was to be just pegged automatically as, an, as a minority instead of being called like Hispanic or something like that. And the ways that race gets denied, especially in the Northeast, and then gets um, leveled off with being, with, um, excuse me, class. People say it's not an, a race issue, it's a class issue. And it's like, well, no, there's reasons that these things are interconnecting our subject positions and the intersectionality of these things are very particular up here for a reason. And within class struggles, especially, and again, I'm thinking the Northeast just because that's my area, um, you know, Latinas have been active in these class struggles in the Northeast, and it's not something that we typically talk about, going back to Rosario's point about who gets depicted, it's usually men. And when we talk about labor movements, we very rarely bring up the representation of, or the presence of Latinos in general. Like I'm thinking of the, um, the pecan sheller strikes in San Antonio, right? Those were women um, that were there. Those were women on the front lines. Those were women who were trying to figure out how to feed their families on their now non-existent um, pay stubs. And so when we're talking about Latina feminism, 20th century and going into the 21st century, we need to start being clearer that we're talking about human rights, right? That it's a, a lot of the times you hear these narratives and it's about, oh, well, you know, they I, I did some research a while back on this idea of like the anchor baby and that these women, right, these women are coming here to take our stuff. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> like that's no. Um, but thinking about the family not as this self-contained unit, but actually a, a representation of the larger community. And if we can do that, then we can start to rethink what we mean when we say, if a child is born, we have a collective responsibility for it. And then that offsets the class issue, right? Like that asks us to rethink the ways that we talk about class and the ways that we talk about the intersections of race. So, um, a friend of mine, she's an activist here in Syracuse, was telling me about this article where women um, would no longer have access to their home care workers, and so they were having to actually take care of their children, um, right? Like, and they were having such a hard time with it because they were having to deal with their children. It was like these women have been coming in and taking care of your children, not able to access their own children during this time. They haven't been there and been able to be present, now they don't have their incomes. Now they don't have access to the things that they needed before. And you're still trying to fight to get them back into your house, even though it's dangerous for them, right? Um, so thinking about the ways that we need to 
reconceptualize what we mean by what are human rights when we're talking about the family in terms of health care, in terms of child care, in terms of nutrition, right, medical care, um, and also what is a reasonable amount of, of work when we think about work not just being something that you're paid for when you go out and get a paycheck, but actually what you do in the home to speak to what everybody else was talking about, changing and Diaper is not the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> Feeding eight children is not easy, right? Cleaning your home is not easy. And so what is unpaid labor? What is paid labor? How do we, how do we start breaking those down within this? And it's, I don't know that it's possible within a capitalist structure, but um, just tinkering with those ideas. And I think that that's possible now in a way that it wasn't possible maybe 200 years ago or 100 years ago. I, um, I really appreciated um, what Rosie had to say about intersectionality right because i don't think that we can look at race or 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 gender roles or uh class without looking at how everything intersects with each other um so i definitely did touch on this before but i mean race plays a big deal and how all of us are treated and the things that we have access to i mean where we live the types of jobs we get the type of respect that we can command when we walk in a room race plays a huge deal in all of that Right. So we're talking about race and feminism. Um, I don't know the exact statistic because I just finished reading this part of the book, but um, like the infant mortality rate with black women is, I think, four times higher than that of white women. Um, and there's all these studies that show that in the medical industry, doctors are more likely to ignore signs of pain from women of color than from white women. I think with, you know, the unconscious bias that women of color can take more pain or maybe that they're just exaggerating. Um, I mean, when we talk about that, then I also think about food deserts and Rosie, you mentioned nutrition. I mean, um, how many studies are there that link poor nutrition to poor educational outcomes because of the chemicals in the food that affect your brain and the wiring of your brain? Um, so, if we want to achieve true feminism, we definitely have to be talking about race and considering how race plays a role in all of those things. And um, also being aware that race and privilege will play a role in how much women are able to engage in the fight for feminism. Um, you know, we're not all starting in the same place. Uh, I know definitely as a Latina, as a Mexican woman, um, thankfully I had a very strong grandmother who was very feminista, but I mean, my, from my husband's family, I caught a lot of shit because I didn't change my last name. Um, and that was something very intentional for me because, you know, I'm working on a doctorate and, you know, I love him very much, but you know, Dr. Perez didn't earn this, Dr. Jimenez did. Um, but I still get shit about that all the time. So, um, and that. I guess my point in that is, you know, some people might not have as hard a time coming up with those simple arguments just because of the privilege and the cultural differences. Um, so, yeah, definitely there is no talk about feminism without also considerations for race. Definitely. I think what both Roberta and um, you just said, I think we can't have this conversation about feminism without race, without class, without everything being intertwined because, okay, as a woman in the United States, we really don't have much of a say. As a woman of color in the United States, we definitely don't have a say at all. You know, nobody is sticking up for us. You know, nobody's here protecting us. We have to do it ourselves. And it's really sad because we can't even count on our sister, like, who's right next to us to help us. And, like, like you just said, I'm very thankful and I'm very happy to have a grandmother who was such a feminist, even in her times, because I think she was really smart going back to my grandmother because, yeah, she let my grandfather go out and make money, but she would always then take the money and, you know, divide it up what she needed to. And then she put some away and then she let him do what he had to do and make him think he was making all the decisions but who, who was really making decisions was her she was sending my my mom and her siblings to really good schools making sure they had food in their system and not just junk food you know um huevos sancochados um boiled eggs pal palta um how do you say that in uh, um avocados 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 
yes, avocados, you know, like things like that, that would actually help him because even back then she knew if you were hungry, you weren't going to focus on anything else. And I think that is so true because growing up, I went to a school which was very, very wealthy, but it was far away from home. So I had to either wake up really, really early to eat or I had to just wake up and just go just like that. And I would even see like the difference in myself because I was more irritable. I was just cranky. I was just not having, I just couldn't pay attention. And I really wanted to, which was like the worst part. Cause I was a kid who was just like, I really want to learn this, but I can't because I'm really hungry. And it's sad, but I remember this one time I asked the teacher if I could have something to eat. And she said, no, she was like, you should have ate at home. That's not our problem at school. And it was very, very, very sad because, you know, I'm a senior in high school working two jobs, you know, coming to school, trying to maintain a GPA and just, it was really hard to manage. And she called me out every single day in front of the whole class until one day I burst into tears and I was like, I just don't have time for it. And I was like, I really don't have time. I was like, I'm really sorry. I was like, I work two jobs. I do this, this, and this, and this. Can you please like get off my back? And she felt so embarrassed because she didn't know what I was going through, you know? And it sucks that even though I was going through like a hard time and her being a woman couldn't sympathize with me. And why? Because she was a white woman teaching a Spanish class in high school. She was trying to come here thinking she could relate to me. She just couldn't. She wouldn't. And it was like, wow, wow, wow. Literally, we are the same person, same gender, same everything. Only difference is you're a little older and you're more white and I'm a little younger and I'm brown. And it's just, it was a real eye opener for me, how women really don't have their backs, especially because there was that class, because she was wealthier, because she was a teacher, because she had her degrees, and I was just a nobody, and I was just starting. So it was, it was really brought to light to me in my early years, but I think instead of doing the same and, you know, knocking down my fellow peers, my fellow sisters, my fellow hermanas, like I'm not making the difference. I want to be that person who any girl can come to because we as women go through so much. And like I said, as women of color, because our lives are seen less than or because of the color of our skin, we don't value as much. Like I remember being followed home so many times and my dad being like, well, what were you wearing? And I'm like, no, man, no, it doesn't matter what I was wearing. I was wearing sweats and a hoodie for your information. I think what you your analysis of of your um, experience as a high school student just basically proved that even though the category of woman is not just one single woman, that there are many different experiences of women, and that the experience of each woman is inflected by your race and your class, and I would say nationality and origin. Right, because not all if you're from South America or from the Hispanic speaking world, it's not the same being from Spain or being from Mexico or being from Puerto Rico or being from Argentina. Right, so that each origin reads, especially in a country that is such uh, um, racism and say has a history of racism and classism as, uh, as strong as the U.S. and that doesn't mean to say that Latin America does not have its own. <laughs> we do, right? Uh, but but you do read differently, and so your analysis scheme is exactly on point. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you just basically said the argument of all the feminists that you're saying. Um, but yes, yeah, so class class affects everything, you know. Um, mm, Social distance, for instance, is a, is a class issue. There are, there are Latinos who cannot, because, of the, because they are, you know, essential workers, cannot keep a social distance, right? There are people who work the fields. There are people who work in the uh, food and meatpacking industries who I guarantee they cannot 
keep their social distance. So, so even something as simple as social distance is a class issue. Uh, so class is not just feminism, as Kim just said, her story actually proves that class impacts. You can, you can be a feminist but not be aware of your class, right? And you can be a feminist but not be aware of your, of your uh, race privilege. Um, and then in Latin America, that gets really mixed up because we're all told from the national narrative that there were, we are all mixed, right? And we probably all are, right? Um, at, at the same time, because we have indigenous peoples, indigenous groups that are still indigenous and they're not treated really well. Um, once that you bring those things into the U.S., it becomes very difficult for anybody who's of mixed race to claim an indigenous origin. All right, so on to our next question. So what are, what are reflections you would like to share from the Women's March in 2016? There were two takeaways that I had from it. Um, the first was seeing the demographics of the women who, um, which way they voted was, um, it was demoralizing for a moment, right? It definitely took a minute to catch my breath. Um, and the second thing, it's going to sound really petty, but I really did not like those hats. Like, it's, they still bother me on a very personal level. All right. I'll try to keep it short. So um, when I think about that Women's March, first of all, definitely inspiring, right? Like, when you look at the pictures that came out of the march and like these awesome signs and just like women coming together and like somebody made this like Beyonce sign that said, okay, ladies, now let's get information. And that like gives me tingles every time I see it. Um, now with that said, I will be very critical and say that never forget that 53% of white women voted for Trump and um, history shows that time and time again, when white women are presented with their options, they are more likely to side with their white male counterparts, even if it means that it is going to be more damaging to them as women. Um, also had uh, an issue with those uh, pink pussy hats, um, just because of the um, assumption that everybody has a pink pussy. And I'm just using it because these are like the words in this book that I read, right? And we, we don't all look like that. Um, and yeah, I just saw, it seemed like, you know, the Women's March was super powerful that one year. And then, like, what happened after that? Um, because we're still not seeing a rise in uh, women of color in positions of power. Um, I think it's something like since 2016, there are now 25 female CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, and none of them are women of color. One of them is an Asian woman. Um, so again, like I said in the beginning of this, um, definitely there were gains, but not nearly enough. I actually, okay, so I'm kind of embarrassed. So honestly, I really don't, didn't have much knowledge of the Women's March, and you know, because I, I don't know. I, I guess it didn't affect me, but I'm a woman. So you see where this, you see that you see, this is, this is my problem because if it's a woman's March, if it was so powerful, I mean, I understand it was very powerful, but I feel like in a way women of color were sort of left out. Like I understand, you know, there's probably like a good amount, but I feel like it wasn't talked or maybe it was just me. Maybe I live in a super super wealthy county and maybe it was just you know something we didn't talk about or a, a reason why we didn't talk about it because I don't remember speaking about it I don't remember like not even in the classroom like oh like you know how like this happened today or like in schools they respect um they show respect on um, Martin Luther King's day by like doing like um lessons about him and stuff like even like about that like I was in high school at that time or in college I don't remember very being invested or just, I don't want to say it wasn't talked a lot about. And the hats, the hats, um, just like she said before, I don't think it's right because not everybody has the same because I think we're all different colors. So that just means if you're blue on top, you're going to be blue all over. Uh, so I just think the the pink part was just, 
I think that got me upset because I think it just focused on the white women. And I think, or maybe that's why I tuned out of it when I heard about it the first time. I was like, oh, white women, that doesn't include me. I'm, I'm, I'm color, so whatever. I mean, honestly, in my point of view, um, women of, of, white women have always gotten upper hand on a lot of things. And I think that in a way, as a woman of color, I was taught to kind of like, or I just kind of like, separated myself because I don't feel connected even though we are women I feel like most of our we don't have the same struggles and it goes back to race and class if you don't have the same struggles if you don't have something to relate to then how can you come together and kind of bond you know and it's sad that sometimes women do this and the and women can do this from other races is like when you talk about tragedies and things that happen in everybody's race you know things that happen all around the world like rape like sexual mix um sexual assault you know i think all of those things do bring women together but i think more things should bring women together well my college sent a delegation uh i think it's um i wanted to go <laughs> to the women's march i actually did um but uh, you had to have a place to live, to stay because it's in Washington DC. You have to do was the one that we that everybody went to was in DC. Uh, you had to ride a bus. I mean, there is some uh, nuts and bolts things that you need to do in order to participate in marches. And I really wanted to go. I didn't. I'm actually sorry that I didn't go. Um, I am disappointed that white woman elected the person who it is, especially after the uh, after that march. But um, I do think that um, when people come together, uh, even though there are all the differences that we just talked about, sometimes interesting things happen, and I think that um, misunderstanding uh, because we don't spend. People from different classes and races don't spend enough time joining and then coalescing about a communality of issues um, that we become more divided. And so when there is an opportunity to overcome, at least for a teeny tiny little bit of moment and coalesce together, I think it's important to 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 attend and then see if you can build, sort of find things that, that are unite us and not divide us. So I was sorry that I didn't go. And I suspect that the reason why a lot of women of color didn't go is because they're moms and they have children and they're responsible. And it's really hard to be an activist when you have, when the, world, the weight of the world really is on your shoulders, you know because you're in charge of raising your families in addition to working outside the home. All right, so the next question is, what issues and policies that feminism needs to focus on for the 21st century? I think we have a lot of work to do with how we talk about gender expression. Um, what are the possibilities and what are the variations that we can embrace as we move forward? Um, disentangling the way that gender as a performance is um, laid onto the flesh and then the way that the flesh gets disciplined in order to maintain um, certain social mores and, and norms. <clears throat> the way we talk about sexualities needs to also uh, be something that's really on the plate and something that we really engage and think through and think about and constantly challenge and question. And I think that that's... Um, one of the great things about where we're at right now is that we, uh, one of the great things about Latina feminisms in general is this constant ability to be self-reflexive and the ability to challenge one another. And as long as it's done respectfully and with the idea of moving forward as a community um, and that it can lead to really great um, changes and transitions and transformations. So I think 
thinking through those things, but also thinking about the very real um, concrete textures of what Latinas go through in all of the varieties um, in this country to not lose sight of um, what it means to be from communities where women are still oppressed, where women are still fighting for basic um, humane treatment in their homes and in the workplace with their families, what it means to be raising a new generation of young women, um, and how we're defining that. So I think those are just some of the things that we, we have the opportunity to, to look at, especially now in our moment. I think for me, the focus is on um, creating more or putting more women in leadership roles, uh, especially women of color. Um, I think that that would be the best start because a lot of industries, institutions, organizations, um, their executive leadership boards are mostly white and mostly male, sometimes female as well. And as well intended as those people may be, they do still lack the perspectives of people of color. Um, and if you lack a certain type of perspective or if you don't know that there is a certain type of issue that exists, you can't take steps to correct it. Um, so I think that we really need to focus on um, making leadership roles more accessible to women of color. And that goes for the healthcare industry, the education, education, um, policymaking. Um, and I also would like to kind of see a shift in the narrative from women have to do this to, or women shouldn't do this, to what do our boys need to do? What, what can they do? to support women and what can they do to make make society safer for women because women are not the problem and to expect the oppressed to pull themselves out of oppression is not gonna happen Kim I love how excited you are you're really hyping me up um so yeah that's what I would say <laughs> Um, I agree 100%. Um, I agree. It's not just women. I think we need to educate our boys. Let's let, like I said, you know, if us women, we can't help each other, you know, somebody has to help us. And why, like, why can't that be a male? You know, of course, he'll never understand what it is to be in our shoes. But a little help and, you know, compassion and sympathy goes a long way. You know, I remember once um, I told one friend that I got followed home and he made sure every single day to call me after I got home, you know, and it was sweet because no one else did that for me. No one else. Not even, you know, I didn't tell my parents at the time I was being followed because I was like, yikes, I'm not trying to have to move this way. But, you know, um, I think we need to focus. We definitely need to focus on class and like and racism abolishing those walls about feminism because like you just said you know we need more more people of more women of color in education in medical fields in positions but i just graduated college and i wanted to be a teacher when i first started going in but because of the teachers the white teachers i had the white professors i had and the hard time they made the hard time they gave me to do things and i saw how easy other white students got away with it i was just like wow and you know what it it kind of it didn't dismotivate me but it kind of was like you know what maybe i need to change my lanes for my own sanity because at the end of the day everybody needs to do what's good for them and for my own peace of sake like i just need to remove myself from that situation and it's sad to say that because i know would have been a heck of a teacher but you'll see me in the field i'll be a a speech therapist hopefully in spanish or something about it you know thank you so um i definitely think we need to we cannot have the feminist conversation feminism conversation without without having those conversations and having those walls tear down with all that said that's all the time that we have thank you for joining us make sure you like the video subscribe to our youtube channel Follow us on all our social media outlets and podcast platforms at Latin underscore entertainment. And check our own website where we center the Latin American diaspora on Abayala at www.latinentertainment.org. Tune in next week for another episode of Conversamos. Yeah.
Yeah, yo, is it that wrong? I'm making a song, I'm taking it back for the platform that I formed. Music's helping me transform. I run the reservoir, the predator.